Growing up, the only place to see films from the golden age of Hollywood was on TV. And some channels showed them, some did not. CHRO out of Pembroke in Ottawa showed oldies on their late movie Almost Nightly, so that was good. And Saturday night on TVO, you had the venerable show Saturday Night at the Movies with Ali Yost, which was another bastion of critical viewing for me. Things changed when I got to university, though. I'd been seeing posters around campus for something called the Student Film Society. And they screened films on Friday nights in one of the lecture halls. Usually old movies, on a big screen, for a few bucks. This was frequently too good a deal to pass up. I was already seeing a nice selection of films in my first year film studies course, movies like Stagecoach and Mildred Pierce and 42nd Street. But at the Film Society, I saw the real gold. Double Indemnity, White Heat, Now Voyager, and of course, Casablanca. I had seen Casablanca many times in my teen years, and to say it had an impact on me would be fair. My bedroom was covered with posters of Humphrey Bogart, who at the time was my favorite actor ever, and I knew every line of dialogue by heart. But I had never seen it on the big screen before. Nothing bigger than our crappy old television, the Radiation King, that I'd logged many hours in front of in my youth. Seeing that magnificent story about three people negotiating their desires, their love, and their responsibilities on a larger-than-life screen for the first time, well, it changed me. It enchanted me. I saw things I had never seen before. I understood the characters in a new way, and I found a new way to love that which I already loved best. You don't get that kind of thing every day. But once in a while you might, if you love old movies. Film historians, I'm Derek and I love old movies. We've got Sam the Sidekick here. Hello, and welcome to episode 26. The first episode of our All Romance movie month of February. For Valentine's Day and all that. Because we are a big pair of softies. The softest. So much soft. All the soft. We've got some good films coming up. For sure. Featuring a few actors we've been really eager to cover. Well, the delay will make the arrival so much sweeter and more satisfying. That's how these things work. It's a bit sad to say goodbye to our month of requests, though, I gotta say. It was easier to choose films to cover when we didn't have to actually choose them. Yeah, it's back to the grind, right? No worries, though. But I know what you mean. January was a lot of fun. We covered some fantastic films, and we had the biggest listener response of any month. In terms of what we usually do, I'd say our monthly listenership was about double what it usually is. So clearly the requests were something that people really enjoyed. And January was so dreary, yeah. here anyway. We had really intense cold, Ooh. a wild amount of snow, yeah. a COVID shutdown, yep. plus all the end of quadmester stuff for me. It wasn't the most enjoyable month. Having so much work to do on the show really kept us focused on the good and not the bad. Well, hey, that's the goal. And thanks to all of you out there for coming along on this ride with us. The whole thing is a two-way street. We record and post... You listen, and then we do it all over again. So thanks a lot for doing your part in making our show the success that it is. You're really cool for checking this show out, so thanks. But hey, maybe this is the first time you're listening to us, and you want to know how to get in touch. Well, social media is the way. 
Tell them how. You can find us on the Facebook. I Love Old Movies, the podcast. The Instagram. At I Love Old Movies, the podcast. El Twitter. At Ilom Podcast. Or you know what? Just send us a good old-fashioned email. That'd be fine. I Love Old Movies, the podcast at gmail.com. All one word. And with this being our 26th episode, that means there are a whole bunch you can go back and check out if you haven't already. There are some good ones there. Maybe one of your favorite films. And if there isn't, send us a message telling us what your favorite is. We're always looking for a good recommendation. So, kind of a big week this week. Was this a big week? Well, my quadmester's over and I'm starting up new classes, so there's that. That means halfway through the school year for me, too. I like that. One of the things I love about teaching is the beginning and end of a school year. It makes a nice, neat little package. I'm almost done high school. Yeah. Man, how did this happen? Well, time comes for us all, kid. I guess. But also, we should probably mention about the HUAC show. Right, right. So, for our upcoming 30th episode, we are doing something a bit different. Rather than reviewing a film like always, we are going to be discussing a topic that really comes up a lot when you're researching films and creators of the 40s and 50s. Of course, I'm talking about the House Un-American Activities Committee. The HUAC. Like I said, we're going to deep dive on Senator Joseph McCarthy, the Hollywood 10, and the impact the communist witch hunts in Hollywood had on filmmaking, both in the short and the long term. Put it on your calendar now, folks. March 3rd. It's coming up fast. But we should get on with this episode and this film. After all, it's a long climb up the hill to the meeting tree, and we don't want to be late. So away we go with our look at Love is a Many Splendored Thing. Our director is Henry King. King was initially an actor, appearing in different theaters before getting some film roles in 1912, going on to have roles in 60 films by 1925. His career spanned most of the golden era of Hollywood, and he is most notable for his literary adaptations, such as A Bell for Adano in 1945, The Sun Also Rises in 57, and Love is a Many Splendored Thing in 55. He also worked with many well-known actors such as Ronald Coleman, Gary Cooper, Gregory Peck, and Tyrone Power. Throughout his career, King directed over 100 films and was considered one of the most commercially successful directors in Hollywood in the 20s and 30s. He won his first Golden Globe Award for his film The Song of Bernadette in 1944, and he was nominated for an Oscar two more times. King was the last surviving founder of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, and he was given the George Eastman Award in 1955 for his contributions to the art of film. During World War II, King served as a captain and deputy commander of the Civil Air Patrol. And towards the end of his life, he was the oldest licensed private pilot in the United States. He died in 1982 at the age of 96. There are those who exemplify the idea of becoming a great success despite coming from the most humble of beginnings, and screenwriter John Padrick is one of them. Literally abandoned by his parents as a child and raised in orphanages, Padrick's writing career primarily focused on theatre. He wrote over 55 original plays, several of which were performed on Broadway, including his first play, Hell Freezes Over, in 1935. Additionally, Patrick wrote more than 1,000 scripts for the radio program Cecil and Sally between 1928 and 1933, 
is stage adaptation of Vern J. Snyder's novel The Tea House of the August Moon in 1953 highlights the peak of his career. It won the Pulitzer Prize as well as the Tony Award for Drama, and he went on to adapt the play for film in 1956. Before that, however, he wrote the screenplays for Three Coins in the Fountain in 1954 and Love is a Many Splendored Thing in 1955. Throughout his career, he wrote a total of 27 screenplays, seven of which were adapted from novels or plays, and almost all were done in collaboration with 20th Century Fox. He died in 1995 at the age of 90. Now, normally, this is about the place that we would discuss William Holden. We've already profiled Holden, a personal favorite actor of mine, back in episode 8. Go back and check that one out if you'd like. We'll wait. Former fashion model Phyllis Lee Isley had a fateful audition with David O. Selznick in the late 1930s. Although she felt that she had bombed the audition and ruined her chance at a career in Hollywood, Selznick was impressed with her, changed her name to Jennifer Jones, and did cast her. Not as Scarlett O'Hara, but as Bernadette Subiros in The Song of Bernadette in 1943, a role that would earn her the Oscar for Best Actress and the first of four consecutive nominations. Selznick continued to manage her career with great interest, eventually leading to a five-year affair between them and a 16-year marriage. Although not a prolific actress, with only 26 credits to her resume, Jones captured five Oscar nominations in all and made several high-quality films in the 40s and 50s. She was known as being difficult to work with, however, even winning an award for that in 1947. Hmm... It's almost like being married to one of the biggest studio heads in Hollywood is good for your career or something. Huh. By the 1960s, her career slowed down greatly. Selznick passed away, and so did a close friend of hers, which led her to attempt suicide. She recovered, but years later, her daughter would not be so lucky, taking her own life. Jones had a guest role in The Towering Inferno, which she received a Golden Globe nomination for, but she treated that film as her swan song, bringing to an end her career in entertainment. In 1980, she donated $1 million to establish the Jennifer Jones Simon Foundation for Mental Health and Education, with the goal being to destigmatize mental illness. She lived a quiet life, away from the public eye and never granting interviews until her death in 2009 at the age of 90. Despite being of Chinese heritage and being born in Hawaii, Richard Liu became famous in Hollywood for playing villainous Japanese characters. Getting involved in theater and film work after the Great Depression ruined his dreams of a career in business, Liu was frequently cast as a stern-faced bad guy, and with the arrival of the Second World War, he was never out of work playing one stereotypical Japanese villain or henchman or soldier after another. He did not often play neutral or sympathetic characters in this time, so his role in Love's a Many Splendored Thing is a bit of an aberration. He is playing a Chinese character who is not a stereotype, but just a normal, decent fellow. With a few notable films like Around the World in 80 Days and The Sand Pebbles and The Man with the Golden Gun on his resume, Liu appeared in a lot of productions. When you take into account all of the bit roles he played on TV shows in the 60s and 70s, his list of credits comes in over 170. But again, many, many of these are stereotypical roles that, while they always offered him a paycheck, too rarely would they offer him dignity. 
Lou was a great example of the that guy kind of actor. Someone you've probably seen in something or many things and definitely recognize, but you're not sure who he is. Actors like that, to me, are the backbone of Hollywood. Richard Liu died in 1983 at the age of 80. Based on the autobiographical novel by writer Han Su Yin, Love is a Many Splendored Thing tells the story of a Eurasian doctor who falls in love with a war correspondent in Hong Kong. But the production of the film tells the tale of two actors who absolutely did not enjoy working together, having to play out a convincing romance on screen. The early tale of this movie is unremarkable. 20th Century Fox acquired the rights, and responsibility for the film passed from producer to producer. William Holden was loaned out from Paramount, and David O. Selznick's then-wife, Jennifer Jones, was cast as the half-Chinese Su Yin. That wasn't a popular choice, though, was it? Not especially. Obviously, Jones wasn't half-Chinese, and many critics and filmgoers felt that a different actress might have been more appropriate. But this is Hollywood in the 1950s, so casting a lead in Yellowface was probably always destined to happen. Well, half Yellowface anyway, since the character was only half Chinese, and the themes of the film greatly explore the two solitudes that are in conflict within her. The real Han Su Yin looked far more Asian than European. So if they would have cast an Asian actress, it would have looked fine. Better even. That just didn't happen then. Bah. The script had difficulty getting approval under the motion pictures code due to issues of infidelity connected to Holden's character and the ethno-racial presentation of Jones's character. And yes, I see your eyebrow raise. The code had more problem with Han Su Yin being a biracial character than they did with a white person playing an Asian. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Bah. When they finally got around to making the film, they had two other problems. Second unit director Otto Lang went and filmed for two weeks in Hong Kong, but when he was doing this, the script wasn't completed yet. So that meant the script writers needed to write around the footage that had been shot, so it would be usable. I feel like there could have been a bit more communication there. <laughs> right? But it was once production got fully underway that Jennifer Jones's attitude and behavior created a toxic set and drove a huge wedge between her and William Holden. There was nothing that Jones didn't complain about. The makeup, the costumes, her lines, and her dislike of Holden was so great that she apparently ate cloves of garlic before filming the lovey-dovey scenes, just to make it uncomfortable and unbearable for him. Is that why he's always kissing her on the cheek and head? To stay away from her breath? Jones would frequently threaten to tell on people on set by reporting them to Selznick, who had nothing to do with this picture, but he was still a big enough name that you didn't want to be on his blacklist. William Holden wrote in his autobiography that she was rude and abrasive to everyone on set. And her reward for that? An Academy Award nomination for Best Actress. Well, at least she didn't win. What's the tale of the tape on this one, Sam? Okay, so we have a 6.5 on IMDb. Mm -hmm. The audience score is 56% on Rotten Tomatoes, Ugh. and the tomato meter is 53%. Okay. The film won three Oscars and a Golden Globe. We open on the cast name superimposed over a helicopter shot of Hong Kong. And the song plays. The theme song. The ubiquitous Love is a Many Splendored Thing. We're going to hear that song a lot, I think. 
1949, an ambulance races through the streets to an amazing hospital overlooking the bay. Dr. Han Suyin is summoned to see an injured child, a refugee from China. She's overwhelmed. I wish I were ten people, she says. And her sense of humor is gone. Overworked and stressed out frontline medical workers. That's relatable. She is invited to a big fancy party of Westerners. Her role as a doctor is a surprise to many of the guests. You see, she is Eurasian, half Chinese, half English. She studied medicine in England. All the nice people are getting out of China, someone says. She became a doctor to help people. She wants to return to China to help, but the communist revolution is a thing, and her sentiments are more with the people and not the politics or conflict. She meets Mark Elliott, played by William Holden. They banter and make a plan to have dinner. She's a wee bit tentative, but smitten. Elliot is a journalist. He's married, but is estranged from his wife. It takes some convincing, but she agrees to have dinner with him, and they get together. I like the shots with the cars. There are some cool cars in this movie. Also, I hate when servants or assistants are called boy in films. The date starts off a bit coldly, as she observes, I don't think destiny intends anything for us. That is not exactly a come-hither line. Most people these days would swipe left on that. They take a drive, then a boat ride, and then have dinner. Turns out her husband was a general, but he was killed by the communists. They have a lovely evening together. She says no to a second date. He says yes. Uh, no means no. Not in old romantic movies. The reluctance is part of the dance. Don't like it. At the hospital the next day, Dr. Sin greatly admires Dr. Han. She combines artistry with medicine, he says. But she is so busy. Refugees are clogging all the wards. A week later, Mark calls. He wanted to take her to dinner, but he must go to Singapore. She says he can call her when he returns. He does return, and he goes to the hospital. He explains that he didn't see his wife in Singapore. They haven't seen each other for six years. Suyin is reluctant for a second date, but Mark is persistent. And they go to a bay and have a nice swim. He's pushy, married, and annoying. I don't like this. The no is problematic, because it clearly also doesn't seem to mean no in this context. She's got to keep up appearances and all that by not seeming too eager? Yeah. And according to the film production code, she couldn't just be hopping into bed with a married man. Ugh. Mark says, a great many mistakes are made in the name of loneliness. He tried with his wife. He really did. Suyin is proud of being Eurasian. She has the best of both races. She also has her work and an uncomplicated life. They swim across the bay to her friend's place. She says Mark is good for her. He makes her feel like the whole world isn't sick. Things are clearly picking up between them. And at the friend's house, a nice time with conversation and refreshments and teasing and dancing takes place, and the song is playing on the radio. Everyone notices that Suyin is smitten. They take a boat back, and Mark confesses he has fallen in love. She says she feels on the brink of something. He embraces her, and she doesn't pull away. They get back ashore and have a weird cigarette kiss that is about the grossest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. But they make plans to see each other again. He even calls her from bed to say goodnight. Alright, that part is pretty adorable. The next day they meet on a hill, near a tree. 
They enjoy the view and flatter each other. He marvels at her superstitions and loves how she somehow blends weird spiritualism with science. He's a bit dismissive of her beliefs. I, I just don't think he can wrap his head around how a woman of science believes in omens and stuff like that. She has to go to Chongqing. She has family matters and wants to see China. And needs space from Mark. She needs to know what to do. She thinks what's happening between them is sordid. He walks away from her to give her all the distance she needs. He's really hurt by how she characterizes what is happening between them. Su Yin flies to mainland China and visits her third uncle and his family. We shall now have tea and speak of absurdities, he says. Su Chen, her sister, is living with a foreigner, and she is doing this so she can stay alive for when the communists take over completely. But the family really rejects the idea of someone in their clan taking up with a foreigner. Su Chen just wants a passport so she can leave. Su Yin says she will arrange it. And that night, Su Yin is fetched from her bedroom and taken into a room with the whole family there. And Mark is there. He just had to come after her. And he asks her to marry him. He will get a divorce. And she says she will do what he wants. That's a weird way to say yes. Mm. And doesn't her family have a thing against foreigners? Well, she goes and asks her third aunt and uncle for permission. And they are not exactly enthusiastic. Mark says he doesn't want her to stop practicing medicine. She won't rule out even going to America. Her aunt says, leave nothing behind with us, Su Yin. And they all give her some jade jewelry. Jade jewelry, they believe, becomes a part of them. So they are all giving her something of them to take with her. And that's that. She's out of the family. She just chose Mark over her entire family. Mark and Su Yin return to Hong Kong, and Mark leaves right away for Singapore to divorce his wife. Su Yin's friends aren't the most supportive. They think she's happy enough without Mark, but when he returns, he says his wife won't release him. She had agreed, but changed her mind. But the couple agree that nothing is different between them. They return to their hill and tree. He tells her he has to go to Macau. He doesn't want to be away for her for a week. He asks her to come. To go on living, one must be occasionally unwise, she says. So Yin and Mark meet in Macau. They wonder about the ramifications of being seen together. So Yin feels all her Chinese friends will shun her, but he wants all his friends to see them. They go to see a fortune teller. He says they will own a big house and have many children. A long life together. 87 years, in fact. Back at the hotel, Mark gets a telegram. North Korea has invaded South Korea, and he needs to go cover this. She wants him not to go, but he must. They return to Hong Kong, and Su Yin hears that her residency at the hospital is not being renewed. Dr. Sin tells her it is because she is Eurasian. He wants her to return to China, since she won't be allowed to practice medicine in Hong Kong. Mark calls her and tells her to meet him at the tree so he can say goodbye before he leaves for the war zone. She asks him if war correspondents ever get killed. He leaves her at the tree so he can look back and see her. And he tells her to remember their time at the fortune teller. Sin wants Su Yin to abandon Mark and return to China. Su Yin sees what is happening in China as not a good thing, but an illusion. It's pretty tense between them. Su Yin stays at Nora's place, since she's been kicked out of the hospital. She gets a letter from Mark describing his life in Korea. We then see him, near the front, typing away. A butterfly lands on his typewriter. Is this a good omen? Well, a Korean plane attacks and drops a bomb. 
but instead of seeing the bomb landing, we see a tray of red ink smash on the floor. The next day, Anne comes with news about Mark. He was killed in the attack. Su Yin can't believe it. She reads his last letter. Life's greatest tragedy is not to be loved, he wrote. God has been good to us. Su Yin leaves Nora's and heads through the streets of Hong Kong, to the hill, to the tree. And she sees nothing. But then she sees him, as he was, waving to her. And then he's gone. And she kneels at the tree, weeping. His voice is heard talking about how she aids those who suffer while he only watches. And we see her on the hill, alone. The end. Yeah. He just died? Yeah, it kind of gets you, huh? Yeah. Yeah, it did. They were really cute together. Mm-hmm. Oh. Okay, pros and cons. So here on the show, Sam and I don't give star ratings or thumbs or anything like that. We just list three things we really liked about the movie and three we had problems with. And it goes a little something like this. My pros. Number one, the ending. It seems a bit trite, almost hackneyed for Mark to die off screen, and the news being brought by Anne by way of a newspaper headline. But it's Su Yin's reaction. And a very nice bit of screen acting by Jennifer Jones that really squeezes every little bit of passion out of the scene. The heartbreak is agonizing. And without saying any words, she takes us on a journey of her emotions. It's painful and beautiful. Number two, the location scenes in Hong Kong. It's just a very photogenic city, photographed beautifully. And it's never presented as being some exotic far-off locale. It seems like a real place with real people. The story told could have happened anywhere, and that's what makes it great. It just happened to occur in Hong Kong. So by not presenting it as a mystical and mysterious far-off locale, the story becomes more relatable. This tale of star-crossed lovers fighting all the odds to be together isn't a new concept in fiction, nor indeed in real life, but it's told here in such a familiar, comfortable, and relatable way that an audience can be easily hooked. Number three, the supporting cast. This is a movie almost entirely about the principal actors. Even what few subplots there are seem to be mostly focused primarily on Su Yin and Mark. But man, the supporting cast does a great job of not simply being scenery for the two of them. There are a lot of Asian actors cast in a large variety of roles, and that casting makes the film far more realistic and believable than Jennifer Jones's performance did. The themes of alienation and prejudice that, and the barriers that arise in the film due to the romance between Su Yin and Mark are all driven by these bit characters. And these moments resonate because the cast is so good. My cons, number one, Jennifer Jones in Yellowface or semi-Yellowface. I don't know what to call it. She's wearing eye prosthetics in some scenes and seemingly not in others. She looks far more European than Asian. But the characters in the movie, especially the Chinese ones, certainly see her more as one of them. Whitewash casting is one thing, and not enough bad can be said about it. But we have to acknowledge that this film is a product of its time, and this sort of casting happened then. And Jones's portrayal is in no way stereotypical or insensitive, but her casting is both of those things. And that the Chinese characters in the film itself seem oblivious to what the viewers can clearly see for themselves is distracting. Number two, the song. Oh, the song. Well, it's a classic, right? It's an Oscar winner. Arguably more memorable and celebrated than the film itself. 
but they ride it way too much during this movie. Everywhere Mark and Suyin go, the song is either playing on a radio or being performed by a band, and when it isn't, the familiar strains are filling the score. Less is more, guys. Come on. And number three, The Mystery of Mark. The entire film is so entirely from Suyin's perspective that we really don't know much about Mark. He is completely defined by her experiences with him, and we know very little about him otherwise. The only time we see Mark without her is when he's about to be killed. I understand there's source material here that the filmmakers were working from, but if there would have ever been a time to take some license and expand a character, I think Mark would have benefited from that. I'd like to know more about him, about why he loved Suyin so much and why she loved him. They loved each other very much, and that's beyond doubt, and I get entirely where Suyin is coming from. I would just really like to know more about where Mark was coming from as well. And is this a watch for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously you have some problematic casting and some dating rituals that haven't aged well to work around, but on a whole, this is an enjoyable and pretty powerful love story. You're up. Okay, so my pros. One, the shots of the cars. These were just some pretty neat camera shots. I really liked the one where the camera was positioned on a street and the car was driving straight towards it. And the one where the camera was in the car pointing out the windshield while it was driving. They weren't your average shot of a car in a film, so I just enjoyed seeing them. 2. The sets. They were awesome! Seriously, I loved the outside of the hospital. It was so big and imposing. Especially the hill behind the hospital that gave a view of the water. It was just so beautiful. And bonus points for actually filming parts of the movie in Hong Kong. I definitely appreciate a film set more when I know that they were able to actually film in the location that the movie is meant to be taking place in. I find it adds a bit of authenticity, but that might just be me. 3. Their relationship later on. So I wasn't a huge fan of Mark and Suyin early in the film, but their reactions really got cute. They were all awkward and annoying in the beginning. She was just so cold to him while he seemed really dismissive about her beliefs. That's generally not a great combination. But once they actually get together, they were adorable. They acted like teenagers or something, like when they did that cute little phone call after their date just to say goodnight to each other. It was so sweet. Aside from the infidelity, they made an adorable couple. My cons. 1. The awkward dance at the friend's house. What even was this? And why did it happen? Everything was going nicely at the friend's house. They were all being polite and getting along. But then... Mark and Suyin get up and start doing a slow, shuffly dance in the corner of the small and compact porch, while the poor friends just have to sit there and pretend they're not incredibly uncomfortable. Did I mention the awkward silence? Because the awkward silence is really the icing on the cake for that unfortunate interaction. 2. When Han Suyin goes to visit her family. This whole part of the film felt a bit unnecessary. Was it supposed to show us exactly what her family thinks about foreigners? Maybe, but I guess a line or two could have done that just as easily. 
All this did was introduce a bunch of new characters in the middle of the film that we heard from once and never saw again. And don't even get me started on the whole thing with her youngest sister. She went and convinced her sister to not go and marry a foreigner. What does she do not even an hour later? Agree to marry a foreigner. Oh, the hypocrisy. 3. The end. Just... no. Everything was going so well for them, and it was all nice. Suyin even sort of adopted that kid. They were all happy. But then... Psych! There's no happy endings here. And then... Mark just gets killed off. He's dead. Gone. Just like that. And Jennifer Jones's performance when she reads about his death... Oh my gosh, it was so emotional and powerful. It was absolutely devastating when she ran up to their spot behind the hospital. I was not prepared for the emotional turmoil I went through at the end. All right. And is uh, this one a watch for you? Definitely. But you might want to make sure you have a box of Kleenex just in case. Okay. And with that, we come to the end of this episode. We hoped you like our look at Love is a Many Splendored Thing. I see what you mean about William Holden. He was a really versatile guy. Mm -hmm. And I was really rooting for them by the end. Oh, it's one of those old Hollywood weepy romances. It gets you right in the feels. It did. What about you, folks? Have you seen this one? If so, let us know what you thought of it and let us know if you enjoyed this episode. We love the feedback, so for sure, please keep it coming. We especially love hearing your stories about how films affected you or factored into your lives. But for now, and until next time, be sure to watch more movies. And tell all the people you can about our show. It's the best way to help us grow, so please don't feel you have to keep us all to yourselves. We are not a secret. So tell your friends. Tell your enemies. You never know. They might like sacrificing everything they hold dear for love as much as you do. Maybe even more. For Sam the Sidekick, I'm Derek, and I love old movies. Additional research for I Love Old Movies, the podcast, is done by Nikki Weatherden. Audio clips come from prefx.co.uk. Images are used through the provisions of fair use, and our theme song, Burning Bridges, is by The Crocs.